Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal Elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Daniel Sargas. And look, some shit has been going down again in the colony this week. Shock. Shock. <laughs> uh, Union Flag. It's a work program by Dark Mofo by Spanish artist Santiago Sierra which uh, on social media last week uh, put the call out to First Nations people to donate their blood to soak the British flag in the name of art. Uh, we'll be speaking to Jazz Money, uh, Wiradjuri woman, poet and artist. Uh, you may be familiar with the work she recently had on at No Show at Carriage Works, a first draft called £10,000. We'll be chatting about the First Nations response and solidarity, uh, the ethics of art and what work the industry has to do to enact meaningful change. And later on the show as well, we'll hear from Tanya Ali, who spoke with writer Mei Jong about her work in exploring sex work by Asian women and the intersections of race, class and gender that were at the core of the recent shootings in Atlanta in the States. We're joined in studio by Wiradjuri woman and artist Jazz Money. A content warning, we will be discussing violence against Indigenous peoples in this conversation. So no doubt you've been across the announcement of Dark Mofo's programming last week, led by a work by Spanish artist Santiago Sierra. In Dark Mofo's words, on behalf of Santiago Sierra, we are looking for people to take part in Union Flag. It's a new artwork that will see the Union Flag, or the Union Jack, sorry, immersed in the blood of its colonised territories at Dark Mofo for 2021. Expressions of interest are now open to First Nations peoples from countries claimed by the British Empire at some point in history who reside in Australia. Participants will be invited to donate a small amount of blood to the artwork facilitated by a medical professional before the festival. Please register now via our link in the bio. Oh, that was just triggering to read in itself again. Um, Jazz, what was your initial reaction when you saw this? I saw it on Instagram just as people were like blowing up around it. I think it had been up for like an hour or something. And I was just like gobsmacked. Like, what? why? Like, it's just dumb. It's, also, it's just bad art. It's dumb, bad art. And to see it sort of being promoted by this festival that everyone's meant to think is so like avant-garde and clever <laughs> it was just like oh gross and then like as it was scaling up you know like why is a spanish white guy like 
look in your own fucking backyard, buddy. You've got your own colonial shit to sort out. Like, that's it's such a weird decision even on, like, any sort of surface level because, like, we ha- – I don't know. There's so many elements to it, right? Yeah. But we have amazing black artists in this country who are doing amazing stuff. And to get this fella in, it's just lazy. Oh, it's beyond lazy. And, I mean, like, we're going to – rip into this <laughs> from a, from many different angles as well. Um, I it, Like for me, when I first read it, it was, I wasn't really surprised. I was just like, oh, can we just stop? Just leave us alone. Like that was just my feeling. I was like, let us be, like stop trying to traumatize and antagonize us. Like just leave us be. And it's just such a frustrating thing that we have to, keep like saying and frustrating feeling to always have you've got enough blood yeah you've got our blood fuck off yeah <laughs> yeah we mentioned the you know the artist himself as being spanish um you know a country that is responsible for an entire legacy of its own colonization throughout history it feels yeah doubly shameful um that he'd be the one creating art that points the finger at the british empire what else do we know about um santiago sierra jazz do you know much about about him only what I've been researching this yeah. week. <laughs> yeah. I hadn't heard of this fella before, but like, it seems like he has a legacy of boring art, right? One of his artworks was putting a tattooing for sex workers who had drug dependencies and paying them like a pittance for a heroin shot, like a heroin dose and tattooing them. And that's his fucking art. Like, what does that tell you? How does that uplift communities? How mm. does that work with people who are facing addiction? You're just taking advantage of people. And then another artwork that I heard about on the radio yesterday where he recreated a gas chamber mm. in a synagogue in Germany. Like, are you serious? Why would it? Like, that's not edgy or interesting. It's harmful. It's only harmful. It made me, yeah, reading that, um, yeah, statement and uh, call out by Dark Mofa, I went through all the stages of, like, grief. But then one of the stages was, like, how many people did this go through uh, for this to be approved and then for it to come um, out on social media as a call out? And, you know, at, at what point was it met with resistance and what happened to those conversations? Um, have you heard much about what um, people internally at Dark Mofo are saying? Have there been statements by, um, you know, like employees that have come out? I mean, I thought it was very telling, right, that um, what's his Lee Carmichael, yeah. who's the director of the Dark Mofo Festival, it was very telling to me, I thought, that he defended the artwork initially and was like, no, nah, we're going forward with it. And we've had this reflects our consultation with the Tasmanian Aboriginal community. And it was like, um, what, the people didn't want it? Like, the only reflection you could be getting at this point is that if you asked anyone, which doesn't seem, I haven't heard anyone from the, like, Palawa community saying that they were consulted, but, um, like, if you did, the response was negative and you acknowledged that in your initial statement. But also then, like, nine hours later, he went back on it and I was like, oh, in that nine hours, like, staff have written letters. I think it was, like, a whole bunch of kind of top-tier people at Mona said that they were really upset, maybe going to leave, all that business. Also, I saw heaps of cries for Lee to be pulled off, like, the Australia Council board and all yeah. of a sudden you mm. can see like this poor white fella down on that island being like oh all my reputation and all my money is going to be like pulled from this thing and all of a sudden like oh so sorry yeah we're not going to do it now and it's yeah. like oh poor form like that turn face was so transparent right 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that it went so far down the line of the creative process up until the point of posting it on social media, like, it was posted with, like, all the confidence that this idea, this call-out, this pitch would succeed. Mm. And, like, it's something that I shared my own sentiments of, which was, like, you know, this isn't, like... The fact that it's we got to look like internally at the process here. We got to look internally into these structures and into these systems, like all systems that are you know existing on our lands right now. They're all inherently racist. They're all fueled by systemic racism because that's what they're built upon, like privatized or otherwise. And so, like, I think that like an internal interrogation of all of that because like there's so much outrage that came from it. Like I was getting really frustrated by seeing a lot of people like, I'm not going to mention who, but like you can look at my Facebook page if you want to see. Um, <laughs> but I saw like one major media outlet posted up as like a celebration. So obviously they hadn't caught mm. on to um, what First Nations people were saying and they posted this initial um you know publication being like oh my god look at this rad idea by yeah. dark mofo oh shame and then hours later post up being like oh my god look at the <laughs> you know the abhorrent artwork that dark mofo are doing is being called out by first nations people we need to back up first nations people and i was like come off it it was so but dirty. that's it right like how are folks so blind like how is it that it, no one saw this before it got across the line like even media companies should have been like have a critical fucking lens. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. I know one of the my favourite um, comments on the initial Instagram post was by Kira Pura and it was along the lines of, like, what a way to reveal that you have no people of colour in your management. Yeah. Mm. And it was like, yeah, because no, that shouldn't have gotten so far. It never should have been realised to that point. Yeah, and I mean, like, there, there have been statements that have come out from um, people that work at Mona um, that they're not directly linked in with Dark Mofo, but they have said that they've been, like, somewhat aware of this project and have numerous times um, caught it out or, you know, expressed very strongly their disdain at an art piece such as this. I mean, it's just like uh, gross narcissism. At every level. Yeah. Um, it's been really fascinating to watch the kind of discourse also revolve around the ethics of art. Um, Lee Carmichael, we mentioned earlier, creative director of Dark Mofo, he publicly responded to the backlash two times. The first time was a double down, as we mentioned before. He defended the work by saying, self-expression is a fundamental human right, and we support artists to make and present work regardless of their nationality or cultural background. And I feel like it's a line or it's a reworking of a line that gets spat every time a work is deemed inappropriate or offensive by the community um which it deems to represent or serve and um yeah the conversations around the ethics of art have been really fascinating because like what are some of the things that we have to consider before we draw lines between art that serves a community and exploits it yeah absolutely and even in that statement like the evoking of human rights while systematically undermining those of a group of people who have had their human rights like attacked constantly by the colonial state is just wild, right? Like, have some self-awareness um, and, dig like, have some respect and dignity and open your ears. But, yeah, that's one of the things that I think has been really telling about this whole conversation is, like, yeah, Mona and Dark Mofo, they, they fucked up, but, like, it's it's 
a system that is creating these sorts of works and that has sort of systematically disempowered First Nations artists and First Nations curators and having black voices in these spaces and um, people of colour in these spaces to have actually interesting dialogues because, like, we don't need a, a blood-soaked flag to know that the British Empire were the bad guys. Like, we that's, that's old news. We've mm. seen it. I'm um, pretty sure it's already been done as right? well. <laughs> like, it's not original. It's not original. It's been done. Yeah, and so, like... But I, th- I think, like, those conversations about ethics, it's like, you know, nothing about us without us. And I think, like, we can hopefully take this moment to learn sort of more broadly that protest works and community rallies. Nothing about <laughs> us without us, I think, speaks directly to what is the issue here. Um, because, you know, people will tout art as being um, inherently ethical, um, no matter what they're, like, if they can put the name, like the brand yeah. art on it, then it feels like they can get a, it's a free ticket to get away with whatever they want. Like look at this entire career that Santiago Sierra has lived off is uh, a career in which he creates art that is abhorrent to the communities that he deems to represent. Mm. I, I mean, like this whole situation though, I also feel like is beating a dead horse like we're flogging a dead horse because it's like how many times do we have to say nothing about us without us how many times like after everything that culminated last year from black lives matter is erupting globally and all of the intense conversations and all of the massive call outs and interrogations of so many systems and so many industries that have executive leadership boards that make all of these huge decisions based upon our stories and our affairs and, you know, represent on behalf Exploiting. of Exploiting. It's only exploitation yeah. again and again and rehashing these stories of trauma and, like, taking minority groups and holding them up as victims and voiceless things and they're constantly just making us the subject in this anthropological way that re- recreates the colony, right? Yeah. Studying, taking blood, taking skin. It's all this stuff that's just, like, you've had it. It's The, the ground is blood-soaked. Yeah. I mean, like, when it comes to how audiences also engage with art, I mean, like, what are some ways that, like, people that are consuming art can have a better critical lens of it as well? Because, like I said, you know, we have these major media outlets that do not kind of think you know, really crucially about what they're consuming and all they do is just post up like, oh, my God, look what that mofo is doing. Super rad. Get your tickets, guys. And then after, like, you know, the outrage comes from the people that are being exploited, they're like, oh, hang on a second. We jumped the gun. That was a bad idea, guys. Mm. Actually, no, we disagree as well. This was bad. (laughs) This is bad decision making. Oh, my God. Call them out, blah, blah, blah. And then it becomes a whole thing of, like, you know, call out culture, cancel culture. The media's manipulated the situation and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just, like, it's really infuriating and it all comes down sometimes to, like, consumers just not thinking critically either about the works that they're consuming. I mean, like, what are some ways that, you know, people need to kind of have a better um, engagement with art as well. I think this is a really, it can be like used as a really great learning moment for the institutions and the art institutions across this country. Sort of what you were saying before is like art always likes to think it's exempt and the arts industry likes to think it's like beyond, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia. And it's like it's a colonial structure. It's a hierarchical institute that's been brought in with those same power systems in play. And 
I mean, Dark Mofo were just unlucky. This stuff, like this is a very extreme example of making a mistake, but these sorts of like thinking processes exist in every arts institution across this country. And it's, you know, you can see it in the executive staff that are all white and you can see the ways that like the colony isn't invested in First Nations peoples until they see that they're going to get in trouble or they see that there's, you know, suddenly a financial incentive because like... Dark Mofo suddenly getting boycotted and all of a sudden like some boss fella going to lose some money and it's like, oh, we're going to back down because all of a sudden like something's on the line and that I think is really telling. But also like when we have Indigenous curators, Indigenous executives, people of colour in these positions of power, suddenly we have conversations that are involving the community and having like really deep engagement with what it actually is to live in the colony of Australia in this, you know, moment. And that's like hopefully an opportunity where people like Australia Council are going to look at their board and be like, are these the faces of Australia? Are these the people that should be making decisions about our arts industry? Or or can we sort of make this a space that is safe and is critical and ultimately is going to make better art? Yep. Yesterday, Santiago Sierra, I don't know if you've seen it. I didn't clock this. Um, (laughs) Well, just, you know. Get yourself like a glass of wine, <laughs> a cup of coffee, whatever you need to Let's kind go. of, you Let's know, <laughs> calm, calm yourself in a way before you read into it because it is very infuriating. But he posted um, on his Instagram yesterday and it was, in his words, an um, explanation, I put that in quotation marks, um, of what has happened, of the cancelled art piece. And obviously he's... Um, Plus it labelled it, labelled it, sorry, as, you know, another instance of cancel culture. Um, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Um, and, of, and he redirected the outrage as a manipulation of the media in order to make an example out of him. So said that everything that has happened that has culminated has been at the hands of the media and their, you know, deceitful ways of not allowing me and censoring me and my art process. And it's just like, mate, no one knew who you were before this. <laughs> no one here, like, no one cared about you. The Like, stop carrying on, like, you know, you're some Angelina Jolie of the visual arts <laughs> industry. Okay. Like, no one, honestly, like, else, if you're not in the visual arts, if you're not in arts, we don't know who you are. <laughs> the rest of the world don't know you. But anyway, he was carrying on like, you know, it was, um, you know, the man trying to hold him down. That's what it was all about. And I mean, like these shock jock artists, they're incredibly narcissistic and can, it, that, that's what I was talking about before. They can be very susceptible to consumers that don't have that critical lens that we do as First Nations people because of immense privilege. And I mean, without the outrage of our communities, this may not have been reported with the perspective of First Nations people. I mean, I feel like if, if First Nations people weren't at the centre and at the forefront of the labour that this took to get it taken down and Santiago Sierra just come out with that post, I mean, people would have easily been like, oh, my God, you poor artist. Is this like a common thing that happens within the arts industry where we have these shock jocks like um, Santiago Sierra or producers like Lee Carmichael where they just double down on censorship and political correctness? I mean, I think this is a pretty extreme case, right? Yeah. Whereas, but I think it's also really interesting that, like, because um, Santiago Sierra was really targeting the First Nations community, like, that's a community that can rally and rally fast and things can go viral and we can really stand up for each other. So we, 
in a way there was a lot of power in being targeted, right? Like if this was, you know, minority communities are really good at holding each other up, right? But I feel like when shock jock artists are kind of, you know, speaking to a white audience and exploiting a white audience, often there isn't that sort of critical lens that gets applied because white folk just expect white stuff to kind of be gammon but kind of be about them. And, you know, there's, I think, less critical engagement that comes with a lot of art being made by majority, you know, cultural dominant groups for themselves. I think in this case, like, we really saw people coming together and, like, So incredible leadership and unpaid labour coming from First Nations people and particularly people from Lutruwida, Tasmania, who Mm -hmm. are living in like a very intense colonial legacy that is is beyond what we're going through on the mainland and very specific to that context. And we saw people like so quickly rallying and, and having this outcry coming from community, being led by community and sort of showing the way that mainland First Nations folk and allies and people could like follow their leadership and what they needed from dark mofo and coming out you know with really brilliant suggestions of like here's our 10 point plan of how dark mofo can make reparations and how we can move forward and how like an apology isn't enough now we need to actually like do these systemic things and then we can trust your organization and until then like we're gonna boycott and that's Mm. gone kind of viral in the in the first nations arts community and more broadly and I love that. <laughs> I love to see how like protest matters and and these folk who can say like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna double down, we're gonna like stick with our our bad ego plan, like they feel the heat when the community comes for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like the way that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, or actually like Indigenous people all over, because this was inclusive of um or First Nations people that have been at the hands of British colonialism, as Santiago Sierra was pointing out. I wanted that blood specifically. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, the way that we have um, a shared space online and offline, I think that's very strong what you're saying there, that it was – I think they massively underestimated that. And it's something that happens frequently. They often underestimate our voices. And that's what gets – manipulated then because when we're outwardly outraged and I mean like I couldn't even say like outraged because like we're not even outraged because we know what this is we know what it's about that's it it was like not enough of a surprise yeah it was just like oh this again yeah and what they end up getting from us is a lot of labor from like you know when white people are like you know educate me teach Mm. me and then you're doing that and what you end up getting is a lesson from us like this is like you know when we get triggered and trauma traumatized and then the labor that comes from us trying to explain to you why we're doing that, that's your education. So then don't reply back to me and be like, oh, but like, t- tell me how to do better. And they're not used to being told off, right? No. Like, I think that's like, they get so sore, these folk, when they're told that they've done something wrong. And I think that's like a real cultural deficit, right? That like, sort of white Australians aren't raised in a culture of being like, no, nah, you you made a mistake and you got to think about it, but it's okay. Like we can come back from it, yeah. but you got to actually make a sincere effort to, to do good by people. Yeah. And I think they're just used to always getting their way and always being able to proceed with their like half-baked plans. Yeah. And then you have these sorts of results where like things can go in two years in development. Like this was two years in development that they worked on this. I know. And now they're all sore because they're like, oh, but we worked really hard, guys. I mean, that's the thing as well. It's like you worked two years on this. I mean, that, that's what's infuriating is that it's like you It hold, would have taken five you minutes. Hold, mm. 
you uh, five minutes one conversation <laughs> and it's like you hold all of this power and all you produce is mediocrity or garbage like there's there's nothing like that's the spectrum that you work between and that's what <laughs> 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 um obviously I have a bit of a disdain for the arts industry sometimes um no but like that's like it's infuriating because it's like just get out of the way, like move, either yes, listen yes. to us or move, because what you're producing is like, it, like we said, it, it they they only seem to walk along this line, like the arts industry only seems to like walk between the line of either exploiting us or fetishizing us. Yeah, yeah, which is why they shouldn't be making art about us, right? Yeah. Like we can make our own art, we can make it really well, and this you know continent is full of deadly First Nations artists who are critiquing and engaging in ways that these white fellas can't even like comprehend which is why they're not getting put on the bills which is why we need more first nations curators and execs yeah um one thing that i heard lee uh carmichael say when he was still doubling down on supporting the work was that um santiago sierra is fiercely anti-colonial and i was like where can you point to me where there is any anti-colonial engagement like when you recreate the colony and exploit the people of the colony and are one of the beneficiaries of the colony, where is the anti-colonialism? Yeah. I mean, I don't really know if a white person can be anti-colonial. I don't think, like, I don't think that that's inherently possible until the actual system of white supremacy itself, which is very existent today, kind of becomes completely dismantled. Until that happens, you're always going to be a beneficiary of it. I don't think you can sit there and call yourself a decolonial person because it's like, no, you're not. You're definitely not, especially if you're holding positions of power. Um, or land ownership in or this country, la- or right? land ownership, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, you're so decolonial. Can I have your holiday home? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, um, Vikamana, um, her handle on Instagram is Endless Yarning and I really, really um, – implore people to go and look at um, a really amazing um, piece that she put up recently as well that I think describes this whole situation perfectly. And um, it's her talking about um, the the definition and differences between bad faith actors and clout chasers, especially when it comes to the online space as well. And I think it's something that uh, a lot of people need to go and look into while they're on this journey of reckoning with their own whiteness. And I think that's what this whole situation with Dark Mofo has been a staunch representation of, and that is, like, you know, whiteness mm. and how how just visible and, like, palpable it is and how how easily it can just trigger and traumatise us again and put us through this, this like, turmoil of, of having to do so much labour to get our voices authentically and properly heard without gaslighting ourselves in the process. Yeah, that's absolutely it. And, like, it just, it, it once again, like, sort of derails any hope or faith you have in this space because it's like, oh, once again, our suffering wasn't even in consideration and is, you know, once again being used to prop up whitefellas for their own corporate interests and, and ego interests. And, like, to sort of be faced with that on, like, a, what was it, Saturday night was just, like, Oh, Lord, give me strength to get through this industry. (laughs) Well, how do you kind of maintain and preserve um, your own self-care and your own well-being being a part of the industry? 
I am in a lucky situation now as someone who's working in the arts. Um, I no longer work for an institution and I work for myself. And Amazing. I get to choose who I work with. <laughs> and so I almost entirely work with other First Nations artists when I'm collaborating with people. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm currently in a boycott with the gallery um, at the moment, which I can't go into, but I'm having quite a bit of like fun just being like, don't come for us. Like, yeah. you know, y- y- being able to sort of make the terms, I'm, I'm lucky that I can, I mean, I'm not that powerful, but I feel like there is power in our voices and we're really realising that. I think after the last year, you know, everything that's been happening, institutions maybe still aren't understanding what they're getting wrong, but they're understanding that there are repercussions. Mm. And I think that's a really kind of exciting moment to be kind of able to mobilize on and galvanize is just turning that lens back on them and being like, what are you doing? Like, how can you be better? And they're, I think, increasingly afraid. Yeah. And that gives me a bit of faith, (laughs) a bit of hope, right? Like that together you know, First Nations communities, queer communities, we can kind of come, uh, people of colour, like we can all kind of rally and support each other and make positive change. And we can really hopefully make these moments that of suffering into something much greater. Who are um, some artists or what are some works um, that have empowered First Nations people that we can, that we can seek out um, at the moment? I think, like, looking directly at Lutrawida, Tasmania, Julie Goff is one of the, mm. like, leading sort of Palawa artists that, you know, is so good at critiquing the colony and what's going on down there. But there's a, you know, a kind of infinite amount of deadly First Nations artists who are practising um, and a heap, are they still on? Um, at UNSW's galleries at the moment, there's this amazing exhibition with Megan Cope. Is that still on? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> God, it's good though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Archie Moore upstairs, and it's just like a really like sharp look at at um, you know mining and extraction and that sort of systemic pain that is in all elements of the colony, right? And the way that that harm is enacted. But also, I'm really like, I really think it's important to also look at artists who are celebrating love and joy and humor, yeah. and not just looking at this deficit pain of the colony but also celebrating all our strengths and joys and you know there's again like so many artists who are really good at that I think Tony Albert's one that often comes to mind someone who's really good at balancing that you know dark and light Mm. that humor and that pain and sort of I don't know artists that make you laugh and then you realize you learned something like that's Mm. that's great stuff yeah (laughs) I mean that's a good artist right there yeah take note (laughs) (laughs) you know who you are (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we wrap up, we asked this question of all of our guests, Jazz, and that is, when did you realise there was power in your race? I think I... I grew up in a very strained white cul-de-sac community um, in regional Victoria, and it was very hard to sort of have any expression or celebration of anything other than whiteness and I think I moved to the city and I suddenly found myself surrounded by like incredible people of color and incredible indigenous folk and I I was lucky to get a a university education and I was like was so overwhelmed by it I was the first person in my family to like finish high school let alone go to uni and there I met like the smartest black 
fellas and they were just like the smartest people in the room and they were black fellas and I was like oh wow look at how the white people crumble in your presence Mm. and that was one of those moments where I was like our voices are you know they stand above and they're stronger and they're more incisive and they're more powerful and I'm so lucky that I got to you know be a part of these strange institutions and see a whole world beyond the one I'd known. Thank you so much for joining us, Jazz, and um, sharing the labour yeah. <laughs> of the last week. I know. It's been so tiring, right? Yeah. Like, it's just been one of those weeks where, like, you open the news and it's like, oh, Another thing. more shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but like you said as well, like, you know, the staunchness and solidarity of um, our communities, both off and online, is really something to take take a lot of calmness and joy in because you're like, yeah, we're going to be good. Like, we've got each other. You're listening to Race Matters. I'm Tanya Ali, and you just heard a conversation that Sara Khan and Darren Lasagas had with Wiradjuri artist Jazz Money. Such an insightful chat spanning the whole dark mofo programming mess of this week and the subsequent rallying of First Nations communities that's finally led to a truly awful so-called artworks cancellation. A content warning before we get into this next half of the show, there are going to be some more mentions about violence, specifically race and gender-based hate crimes. We're heading over to the States, where another community has been rallying, off the back of the horrific Atlanta shootings on March 16, where eight people, including six Asian American women, were killed when a man opened fire at three separate spas. This comes after a whole year of relentless anti-Asian sentiment in the States, and it sparked a movement, Stop Asian Hate, demanding justice for the victims of the fatal shootings, as well as an end to anti-Asian racism and misogyny. I caught up with writer Mei Zhang. I'm a, a reporter for Vanity Fair magazine here in New York, and I am currently at work on a book about sex work. May wrote an article for the New York Times recently called The Deep American Roots of the Atlanta Shootings, outlining how the victims were at the, in this instance, deadly intersection of race, gender and class. Before we hear more from May, I want to take a moment to pay tribute to the victims of these shootings. Zhao Ji Tan, Da Yu Feng, Hyun Jung Grant, Sun Cha Kim, Sun Chung Park, Yong A.U., Paul-Andre Michel, Delena ashley Yon. I think what's, what people don't realize when they, when they hear news about mass shooting is that such events don't happen in a vacuum. It is, uh, in some ways, a, an, a, a, a pretty expected result of decades, if not centuries, of prejudicial feeling that has been institutionalized in governmental policy. I believe that due to recent events, anti-Asian sentiments, as you mentioned, people, um, the American public, but also, you know, um, people elsewhere have come to be more familiar with things like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. This was the first uh, federal law that sought out to exclude a very particular ethnic group, in this case, Chinese people. 
And it was really only um, abolished during World War II when it became politically inconvenient for uh, America to be, you know, to have such a explicitly anti-Chinese legislation when they were trying to ally with China to um, fight against Japan. And as, as I read in the piece, what is lesser known is that actually the Chinese Ex Exclusion Act, which actually is the, um, the progenitor for a lot of anti-immigration legislation that would follow in, in, the, um, in future centuries. But, but in fact, uh, there was a law that predated the Chinese Exclusion Act by, I believe about seven years, almost a decade, called the Page Act. And this act specifically was targeting not just uh, people coming from China, trying to immigrate from China, but Chinese women specifically. And the reason was that there was a lot of xenophobic uh, attitude towards the Chinese, but also uh, towards Chinese mores that were thought to be um, anti-Christian. And a lot of that animus and fear was directed towards Chinese women. And so if ever um, a Chinese woman in the early 1800s wanted to immigrate to America, she would have to sit through an incredibly rigorous um, inquiry on behalf of, um, you know, by way of usually it was in, it would, it would take place in Hong Kong. Um, the Hong Kong consulate sort of took this on as, as his um, pet cause and he would ask these women a series of questions among which were things like, um, you know, do you intend to prostitute? You know, once you get to the new world, are you a virtuous woman? And I believe this attitude of suspicion and orientalizing has um, has remained in America. That is, in some ways, how the alleged shooter uh, long perceived these women who were working at um, uh, massage parlors in Atlanta, and what perhaps inspired him to, you know, both lust after them, but also want to eliminate them in inverted um, commas, you know, to to make use of the vocabulary that Long himself employed. Long is a product of our time and this country. And until very recently, America, as we all regrettably know, has been run by um, a man who was among the first to use such um, problematic phrases as the Kung flu or the China virus to refer to um, the, the coronavirus um, pandemic that we're still living through. And I don't, I don't think, I mean, it's always difficult to draw a neat causal link between events, but I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, we have this, we have President Trump um, making such statements during a time when, you know, the, the, the entire country is going through hardship. And as we, we've learned, uh, it is human nature to want to find a kind of a scapegoat when we're going through um, living through an era of privation. And East Asian community, as you mentioned, have been sort of, I, I sometimes I wonder if it's that in America, like everyone gets a turn um, on the like misery um, merry-go-round. And, you know, it, it just so happens that, you know, right now it's um, the East Asian community that is being um, unjustly punished for what exactly, it's unclear. But um, yeah, I, I, I do think there's a relationship. And of course, as I mentioned, it's, it's hard, to, hard to know really. And in, in the early hours and days after the shooting, there was a lot of effort uh, that was marshaled to figure out why would this person do such a thing? And 
uh, as I mentioned in the article too, I, I really do believe that motives are very difficult to pin down. And most likely it is, you know, some people are saying, oh, it's all about race. And others are saying, um, no, it's horophobia. You know, some other people are saying, no, this is clearly about gun violence and gun control rather. And obviously these things are not mutually exclusive. These forces are constantly making and remaking each other. May mentions a causal link, and when reading about this truly awful shooting, there was something that stuck out to me that I feel like relates to that. The police investigation is still ongoing, but there seems to be this total reluctance to deem this crime a hate crime. And then at the same time, obviously, it's impossible to ignore that six of the people murdered out of eight were Asian women who worked in massage parlors. So I asked May, why does she think that the racial motivations of this crime remain in question by authorities? <laughs> That's such a great question. I I recall early on, you know, I'm sure you followed the, um, uh, the, the sheriff's office gave this press conference now. Um, made quite infamous by the fact that the sheriff giving the press conference, you know, said some, something like the alleged shooter was having a bad day and this is why he committed such terrible crimes. And of course, that sort of caused a massive uproar among people, um, just justifiably so. And it, it is a curious, curious thing, the, the relationship between law enforcement and the alleged perpetrator it, I, I was quite confused by why is it that law enforcement choose to take his word for it and, 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 and then, you know, in this parallel universe of, you know, Korean language or Chinese language media, they were actually um, quoting witnesses who had reported that the shooter had said something like, I'm going to kill all Asians as he shot up the parlors. And so, there does seem to be this parallel track where different communities are not talking to each other. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it if it isn't just a matter of, you know, the Atlanta police simply not having the capacity to speak with witnesses in the Korean language community or Chinese language community. But even beyond the sort of the logistic, um, logistical, I don't know, um, hardships maybe that, you know, law enforcement may have faced that I've been thinking a lot about how in some ways, you know, the sheriff is a white man and as is long and, you know, they have more in common really with each other than the, the, the sheriff would with the victims. And there is this, yeah. And so that relationship, the distance between those communities is something that I've thought about. And as well, I think on a, on a more, um, uh, the, I don't know, bigger picture level, I, I believe that we don't really think critically about the relationship between fetishizing and enacting violence. And so Long very clearly, he himself has stated that, you know, he, again, you know, saw them as obstacles to be eliminated. Um, and, and using that language, that, um, that vocabulary denotes that Long has seen these women as objects that are in his way and he's literally objectifying them and as, as I, I wrote in the the copy um you know Asian women in this way become objects of 
both hatred and lust, a thing to loathe than desire. And I do think that the distance between yellow peril, which is what defined East Asian in, in Asia more broadly experienced in America for, for a very long time, and yellow fever, which you know is somehow meant to be a good thing, but that's also, as you know, positive racism, which is problematic on, in its own regard. There is really, it, it's two sides of the same coin. I think that the, the force that inspires someone to orientalize an East Asian woman is, is the same force that, you know, allows him to regard East Asian women as objects to be eliminated. New York-based Korean-American writer Mae Jong on the intersection of race, class, and gender in the context of the Atlanta shootings. As I mentioned, Mae Jong's article for the New York Times on exactly this topic is excellent. We've linked it on our programs page, fbiradio.com forward slash programs, and click through to Race Matters. Highly, highly recommend having a read. Currently, May is writing a book about sex work. I mean, I'm Korean. Um, my parents are Korean, and I look Korean. And for uh, for many years, I lived in Afghanistan, where I would often be mistaken for a prostitute. I was often stopped on the road, um, on the street, by Afghan policemen who wanted to, you know, look at my ID. And and when I often them my Canadian passport that you know for so further confusion because I don't look Canadian again using inverted commas and I remember being very incensed by that experience how dare they think I'm a prostitute and then years later after coming you know back to North America I've been sort of trying to investigate my own feeling like why is it that it, why is it such a bad thing to you know be mistaken as a as a prostitute and and then, and then after coming back, I did a story in 2019 about um, this American billionaire named Robert Kraft who walked into a massage parlor um, and unbeknownst, unbeknownst to him, there had been a raid and so, like a, a hidden camera. And so um, uh, this became a big deal. And of course, you know, vice raids happen all the time, but it just so happened to involve a billionaire. That's really the only reason why this event rose to the level of um, national attention. And what I learned was that, I, uh, so, so whilst I was doing this story, which takes place in Florida in 2019, I was quite struck by the fact that all the women working at these parlors were, um, they led such precarious lives, you know, they were, they were either stymied because they didn't have language skills or they were, you know, they didn't have proper paperwork, maybe they were undocumented. Um, obviously there were women and women of color, which, you know, doubly disenfranchises them in many ways. And while doing research, um, into the story, I learned that a lot of, that's when I learned a lot about, you know, um, the, the, the history of legislation in America. Whenever there's legislation that is anti-prostitution legislation, it by default ends up being an anti-immigration legislation. I hadn't really realized that the relationship between these two things. And then since then, I've, I've been quite struck by how, um, sex work really does seem to be at the this like terrible epicenter of a lot of our modern concerns and so um you know in new york where i live in in, in flushing queens for example the area where sex workers often work is also the same area that is currently being gentrified and so you know that's the relationship between you know sex work and gentrification 
there are huge overlaps between sex work and criminal justice. Um, you know, again, in New York, uh, we recently, Albany rather, passed a law called the Walking Wild Trans Ban. And effectively what it is, is that, you know, until very recently, uh, police officers could arrest you for loitering with the intent to solicit. And of course, that effectively means a police officer is profiling you. The, the, the officer is deciding, you know, based on your demographic, um, what you're wearing, perhaps, what neighborhood, um, at what time you're walking, you know, through. Um, it's the police officer deciding that, you know, you are, you have intent to, to solicit as in, you know, you're, you're um, uh, engaging in prostitution. And and, 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 you know, it goes with other you know, trans rights. There's a massive overlap between um, uh, trans rights activism and sex work activism. And so, you know, the list is quite long. And what I've realized is that I, I've come to understand sex work is a kind of a um, overlooked civil rights concern. It's a community of people who are being discriminated for effectively, you know, being disenfranchised or poor or of color or you know unable to work in you know above board markets because they are locked out because maybe they're you know trans in a transphobic world or maybe they're again as a you know all all of these issues that we're talking about are quite um interrelated and of course we asked may the question that we ask each and every one of our guests on race matters when did she realize there was power in her race Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, I don't have a canned answer for you, which probably means it's a great question. I suppose <laughs> I've been feeling that quite a bit, you know, in the aftermath of the shooting, and weirdly, that I I've been quite moved by members of, I guess, yeah, the Asian American community stepping up to be, you know, to stand in solidarity with um, labor rights people or, um, or, or, you know, all these, you know, other sex workers. And again, I really think that our only salvation is realizing that fighting oppression means not just fighting oppression for your own community, but um, defining community quite broadly and working alongside other people. That's all for Race Matters this week. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Darren Lasagas. Thank you so much to our guests on today's episode, Jazz Money and Mei Jong. Uh, you can find every episode of our show at fbiradio.com slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.